Well, praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Um, yeah, I know I say the same thing every week when I come up here. It's a uh, privilege to be able to come together and open up the word of the Lord, and I, I truly mean it. There's, there's no place we'd rather be, and uh, just grateful for the privilege to worship the Lord alongside of all of you. So thank you guys for all the uh, well wishes and prayers and encouragement uh, over these past few days. So uh, let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 this morning. And I'm going to have you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, excuse me. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for the tremendous privilege to come together to be instructed by, encouraged by, edified by, shaped by, molded by, conformed into the image of your precious Son through your revealed word. And we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would change our hearts through this text, that you would be glorified in our time, and that we would give you and you alone the worship that you deserve. So we thank you so much in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, let's dive right in here this morning. If you were with us last week, you know that we spent a considerable uh, amount of time looking at the testimony of a man named Job, an actual man who experienced some of the worst sufferings and tragedies imaginable. Loss of health, loss of loved ones, uh, all of his children at one time only to find himself in the company of some not-so-wise counselors who, in their own self-righteousness and self-piety, sought to console him by giving him spiritual advice and guidance based not upon the true nature of Yahweh, the God he served, but instead based upon foolish presumptions of who God was and, of course, who they felt God should be. In other words, counsel based on a false god. This, of course, was met with the ire of Yahweh, partly because Job began to question God himself. Hmm, is he really just? Is he really good? Then why am I, a blameless man, suffering so? To which the Lord replied, who is this? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this? Who are all of you to question how I, the sovereign God of all creation, operates inside and even outside of my creation? Where were you when I spoke all things into existence? This is slam dunk application here for Genesis 1-2. It was almost too easy last week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. 
Well, but there was this big bang. Well, there was this cell that separated and mutated. Well, God created, then he stepped back and he put his hands up and he said, hmm, I wonder how this is all going to turn out. Uh, Well, there was a curse when Satan fell, a curse on the earth. Well, there was a great ice blanket that covered the planet. Well, there was an original creation that evolved over time. Well, there was a gazillion point seven years in between verses one and two. Well, God created from, uh, God didn't create from nothing, but he created from himself. Uh, Well, God's word doesn't line up with this recent study and, and that study. Well, we can just alter the meaning of this word or that word to make it fit with what we're seeing in the latest research. Well, we can just change that little phrase there. And can become now, and was, can be became. Formless and void can become ruined and chaotic. Darkness can be changed to curse. And, well, we can just interject the idea of recreation into everything. And, well, 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 blah, blah, blah. Words. Words, a bunch of words from a bunch of mouths of men without knowledge. They're words without knowledge from the mouths of finite and sinful men. Theories of skeptical men, which one writer said forced them to do violence to the Hebrew text. What a great descriptor for those who twist and mangle scripture to make it fit their agenda. They do violence to the text. But Yahweh says from the whirlwind, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you know understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The application for today's text might, again, be almost too easy. Where is the way to where the light dwells? And darkness, where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know you were born then. The number of your days is great, Yahweh says. Who is this? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Answer, those who neglect to take these words, then God said, let there be light, and there was light one day in their plain, literal, straightforth meaning, and by faith believe that they were absolutely true as stated. That's how we'll spend our time together this morning. We're going to look at the words of verses 3 through 5, an incredible section of Scripture in their plain, simple, basic meaning as the Lord intended for us to do. And then we'll marvel together as he begins to form and fill the very earth that you and I are seated upon this morning. Amen? Amen. Now, I know I went a little bit off track last week in my outline. I know. But I can assure you that will be helpful for you to follow along today. And for no other reason, you'll know how much longer I'll keep talking. Uh, 
Let's look together now at the first words of verse 3, which are of utmost importance as they begin a pattern, a sequence of events in the formation and inhabitation of the earth. Verse 3, point 1 in your outline. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. I'm calling this first point the divine disposition for two reasons. Number one, by Yahweh's own volition, by his own free will, as the only one who actually has free will, under zero obligation to anyone or anything, by his own nature and disposition, the eternal God of the heavens and the earth determined to create. He determined to create the whole universe, the entire universe as we know it, as we read in verse 1, and he determined to create it ex nihilo. He determined to create out of nothing. Second reason for calling this the divine disposition is because of the order and sequence which he chose to create. When the days of creation began, you'll notice a pattern start to develop. When I started preparing for this text, I had this whole chapter printed out here, and I began to mark the similarities and patterns of these 31 verses. I had red underlines and blue boxes and green squiggly lines. It was pretty amazing to see how everything was arranged here. Each of the six days we notice, then God said, followed by either, and there was, or, and it was so. Repeatedly in this chapter, we see God called what he had made. God saw what he had made. And God said that which he has made was good over and over and over again. We see multiple separations, divisions, which we'll get to here in a moment. The light separated from the darkness, the expanse from the waters, the waters from themselves as dry land begins to appear, day and night separated. There's a divine order to creation. He is not a God of confusion, but of order. He created the sun and the moon and the stars to regulate time and seasons, the heavenly bodies which operate with precise predictability, just as they were created and designed to do. The almighty, all-knowing God knows exactly, right down to the tiniest detail, to the tiniest cell, to the very nanosecond, how his created order would function. And he knew it from before time itself began. Even from before his sovereign decrees of let there be. So then, it should come as no surprise that he was able to begin the formation and habitation of his earth with the simple declaration of his word, let there be be light. And thus we have point two, the divine declaration. And the first record of God speaking in Scripture. This is pretty incredible when you think about it. This Elohim, this supreme God, is not detached from his creation. He's not aloof to the goings-on down here. Oh no, right from the start, right from the very first words, we see divine communication. He's telling us The God of the heavens and the earth is telling us with these words, here's how everything began. The earth in verse 2 was formless. It was void. That means it was without shape. It was empty. It was like a preformed sculpture that sits as a lump of clay. Or even as the elements of the clay, which would soon be fashioned into that lump. The kaolinite, the smectite, the silicus, which make up the clay, were floating in space, in created space. 
Yet you'd have to go back even further to define what made up the silicas and the kalanite and the smectite, eventually leading to nothing itself. He spoke the very universe into existence from nothing. From nothing. Something wasn't anything at all until he said, you're something. Including what we would know as water. The earth was formless. It was without shape. All the elemental principles of water were floating around. Hydrogen. Hydrogen, oxygen, all elements spoken into existence from nothing, floating around right up until that moment when the Spirit hovered over them, the Spirit of God hovered over them, moved over them, like an angel, or excuse me, like an eagle who stirs up its nest that hovers over its young, says Moses in Deuteronomy 32, bringing shape and form and structure to everything. Some even call him the energizing activating agent as the waters and all the elemental components were being molded into this spherical, circular form. As the word went forth, the fiat looks, let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light instantly. Alan Ross quipped, the great I am said, let there be, and there was. Just like that. No delay, no suspension, no hesitation. He commanded, and there was light. Supernatural light, yet physical light. He willed light. He appointed light. He declared light, and there was light. Psalm 33 says, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. I love that. He spoke, and it was. He commanded, it stood. Psalm 148, praise him, heaven of heavens. And the waters that are above the heavens, let them praise the name of Yahweh. For he commanded, They were created. Nobody else has the ability to do this. Are you kidding me? Uh, To speak things, things which we still require to survive today into being by their very word. I say a lot of things by my word. Go brush your teeth, put on your jammies. Doesn't happen. (laughs) Can I get that without cheese? Fail. Here, throughout chapter 1, God speaks and things of infinite complexity instantly appear. The galaxies, the heavenly bodies, the sun, the planets, the clouds, the seas, the fish in those seas, the dry lands, the hills on those dry lands, the plants on those hills, the animals who eat those plants, the peoples who would eventually eat those animals, and the annoying insects who bite both the animals and the people, post-fall, of course. The bodies of all these creatures, all with some form of cardiovascular systems or respiratory systems, circulatory systems, gill functions, neurons in the brain, which all work together as all of earthly life, as well as the wonders of the heavens above, the sun, the moon, the stars, and their courses above is maintained, sustained, and upheld by the same omnipotent word. This word of God which said, let there be light, there was light. 
Martin Luther said, a, a marvelous phraseology is this indeed, unknown to any writer of any other language under heaven, that God, by speaking, causes that to exist which had no existence before. Here, therefore, Moses sets before us the medium and instrument which God used in performing his works, namely, the word. At one point, the elemental components, the waters, were formed to make up this earth. They were suspended in darkness. Again, what many have called the nothingness of space, which blows the mind. Yet, with the very utterance of a word, the light necessary and sufficient for all that followed shone brighter than 10,000 suns. This is the divine declaration in creation. Let there be, and there was. Well, naturally, this raises a a legitimate question here. Wait a second now. The lights, plural, including the sun, aren't created until verse 14. Let there be the lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, verse 15. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, verse 16. How can this now say that God said, let there be light, and there was light when the lights hadn't come until the fourth day? It's a great question. Let's first define light. What is light? Answer, the absence of darkness. Look at verse 4 with me, point 3 in your outline. God saw that the light was good. The light was good. It was pleasant. It was beautiful. God separated the light from the darkness. The purpose of light is to illuminate that which is dark. So if we can picture, as difficult as it is in our finiteness, this now formed watery globe that sits suspended in the darkness of space, all of a sudden by the fiat creative expression of Elohim, he sovereignly decrees illumination. That's this light here in verse 3. I realize this brief simplistic, feeble attempt to articulate something so magnificent is ultimately futile and may even be cringy to some degree, but I don't know how else to say it. I don't know what this looked like. And frankly, nobody else does either. Why not? Because there was only one who was there to witness it. Only one eyewitness at this point. Who is that? That's right. The triune God of the heavens and the earth. Which is why he said to Job... Where were you when I did all this? Where were you? That's what drives these unbelieving scientists so bananas. They can only explain the observable. Theories are based off of that which is seen and measured and calculated. Nobody was here when all this took place. That's where faith comes in. What's the opposite of faith? Doubt. Disbelief. Unbelief. Skepticism. African fish fins turning into legs a quarter of a million years ago type stuff. I mean, I've heard of chicken fingers, but fish legs? That was a first for me. If a more intellectual and articulate explanation is necessary, which I totally understand, I'm not offended in any way. Of all I read, I think Henry Morris said it best. This tremendous creative act of the Godhead might be summarized by saying that the nuclear forces maintaining the integrity of matter were affected, uh, were activated when the father, by the Father when he created the elements of the, pre, of the space to mass time continuum 
The gravitational forces were activated by the Spirit when he brought form and motion to the initially static and formless matter, and the electromagnetic forces were activated by the Word of God when he called light into existence out of the, the darkness. That's way better than what I said. Because he highlights the triune God at, at work there. Okay, so what is light? According to that definition, the divinely activated electromagnetic forces producing illumination which overcomes the darkness, which God says is good. But then he separated or divided the light from the darkness. Now, what does this mean? Well, again, I wasn't there, but I believe this mention of the separation of the light means that the light spoken in verse 3 shone on this now formed and shaped earth. And specifically, already from one side of the now formed and shaped earth. There was darkness and light on the globe, just as we see it today. The earth rotates on its axis. From our perspective, darkness is swallowed up by or conquered by light. It's dominated by the light every morning, every day, though now from a light source, which at this point in verse 4 hadn't yet been created. But he clearly says of this initial light, using the same cyclical terminology we use on this round-shaped globe, as you hear my voice this morning, that he called the light day and the dark night. Same terminology he carries over into verse 14 when he sets the lights in their place. So, second question, where did this light come from? Well, do we really think that this all-powerful, almighty God actually needed the sun or the stars in the cosmos to bring about the light necessary to illuminate the earth at this point? Of course not. It was already lit in our verse 3. Why doesn't God need the sun and the moon and the stars to provide light? Because, as John tells us, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. He says, we then are to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. For he is light. We just sang it. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Don't make me sing it now. Lord, spare us from such torments. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light. Thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. He doesn't need this tiny little sun and the stars to produce light. He himself is light. In Psalm 74, Asaph says to the God of Israel, You are shining. Radiant with light, majestic from the mountains of prey. Paul, speaking of the one who gives life to all things, to Timothy, says he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lords of, Lord of lords. He alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see at the end of this world as we know it. At the creation of the new heavens and new earth, John tells us there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Why not? Because the Lord God will illumine them. They will reign forever 
and ever. He needs no heavenly bodies to give light. He needs no luminaries in space, for he himself is light. Not only is he light himself, but he's the source of light. But look with me at verse 5. As he names the light. In fact, God called the light day. Darkness he called night. You know what that means, don't you? That's a pronouncement of divine supremacy, divine dominion over both day and night. Oh yeah, look again. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. He's calling them. He's, his, his calling them, his naming them, means he rules over them. It means that he owns them. It means that they belong to him, just like the stars which he numbers, knows them by name. Well, who gave them their name? Yeah, the one who owns them. The one who owns them. That's what we see. Divine dominance displayed in his creation. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. That means it's his expanse. His heaven. Verse 9, God said, let dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 10, and he called the dry land earth. It's his land. It's his earth. When the land formations began to appear on the watery globe, they were joined together. What began to pool in between them? Water, oceans, seas. Look again at verse 10. The gathering of the waters he called seas. He named them. Those are his seas. Guess who else he named? Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Genesis 5.2 says, he created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Who gave us the name man or Adam? Who? That's right. So who do we belong to? God. Yeah. The Pharisees, in an attempt to trap Jesus, trying to make him speak out against Rome, ask him, Lord, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He says, give me the coin that's used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Is on this. They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. To God, the things that are God's. Give Caesar his little hunk of metal. Give it to him. Caesar called it a denarius. It's got his picture on it, so it's his. But then give God what is God's. Namely, all men created in his image, meaning he has dominion over all men, whether they like it or not. He created them. He named them, and he owns them. He owns them. He owns every one of us. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus made, or they knew. So Matthew said, in hearing this, they marveled. Leaving him, they went away. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. The darkness he called night. Divine dominion over day and night. We're doing pretty good. We've seen the divine disposition. We've seen the divine declaration, the divine division. We've seen the divine dominion. Light is day, darkness is night. And now, as we close up this passage, we have 
we have to look at the divine duration, which you'll see soon is a stretch in my alliteration here, but what do you do? This, of course, is a reference to the duration of a day, which makes me feel a bit silly to have to even say that. The duration of a day? How long do you think a day is? Well, this is another area where people have said, ah, 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 not so fast. You know, that term for day there, yom, that's been used in other places and in other tenses to refer to a period of time longer than a normal 24-hour solar day. In fact, because there was no sun, at least in the first three days, it's perfectly reasonable to think that these days here in Genesis 1 could actually refer to an extended period of time or even ages of time. Some might even say, oh, I don't know. Millions and millions of years for each day? As if the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth who had the ability to speak things into existence by his word alone really needed that time to let everything evolve a bit? That's what you're telling me? Again, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek because of last week what I called the interpretive gymnastics, though have now switched to text violence uh, committed by some of the skeptics. Uh, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek because there are actually folks out there who really believe in what is known as the day-age theory. You heard of this? Which, again, at the end of the day is nothing more than an attempt to inject man-made theories into the clear, plain reading and meaning of Scripture or darkened counsel by words without knowledge. Sometimes I think we're too smart for our own good here. We're way above this plain, literal interpretation. I mean, the lengths that people have gone to to explain fiat creation away are incredible. What's their main justification? Well, some say a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. So at a minimum, we're talking 6,000 years here in verses 1 through 31, not six days. Well, if we can make each day a thousand years, what's to stop us then from just defining it as ages and ages? Again, this word yom is used a few times elsewhere to indicate ages and definite periods, so some would say this is plausible. That's right. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. Peter says it clearly in his epistle. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like A thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. Notice he doesn't say there a day is a thousand years. He just says it's like a thousand years. Even Psalm 90, Moses' psalm, which Peter quotes from, says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Like a thousand years. A thousand years are like yesterday. It doesn't mean a thousand years is a day. Plus, he clearly says evening and morning. A definition of a 24-hour period, the Jews still maintain to this day. They still say evening and morning. That's how they base their days off of. The the evening comes first. Why? Because the darkness came before the light in Genesis 1. They still hold to it. Well, some would say, well, okay then. Well, uh, maybe this just means that God is taking one entire day, yoms, that's used thousands of times in its normal sense, a literal 24-hour solar day, which we've all known a day to be. Maybe it's just God taking six 24-hour solar days to explain to Moses what he did over ages and ages, billions of years in the past. 
meaning. This clear reference to evening and morning in verse 5 is just there to say that Moses sat there for a day listening to the in-depth explanation of God as, how, as to how he formed and reformed and reformed the earth over billions and billions of years. First 24-hour period. Okay, Moses, today we covered light. We'll see you tomorrow night when I begin to explain the expanse. We'll hit that for another day. Then on Wednesday, land. I'm not kidding. Some folks actually believe this. What do you think? What do they think? That Moses was sitting there with the two tablets on the back? Ding, 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 ding. Let, then God, ding, 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 said, ding, ding, ding. Well, well, slow down, slow down. I'm trying to get this. Ding, 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 ding. Let their, off. Oh, I see, I messed up. I told you. Okay, now we got to start all over again. Good thing we got 20 hours left. Come on. My, my brothers and sisters, revel in the sheer simplicity of this text. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. The first day. One day, day one, in the books, light bursting forth and glorious day. In the span of 24 hours, he provided all the light necessary at the initial formation and habitation of his creation. The second day, the expanse. The third day, land, oceans. A fourth 24-hour period, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavenly bodies, all created by his word Living creatures, birds of the air, aquatic life to inhabit those seas and skies on a fifth day. Land animals, cattle, creeping things after their kind. Man and woman in his own image, he created them on the sixth day. Less than a week before resting on the seventh day, which he would confirm in the institution of the Sabbath. Six literal 24-hour days, you work. On the seventh day, you rest. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. And again, I'm not going to beat a dead horse here, but you begin to search the depths of the infinite power of the one true God. He speaks that which was not into existence by his word alone. The dilemma quickly shifts from how am I going to line this up to match with the billions and billions of years they say it took to observe all of this to six days, 144 hours. What took him so long? But when it's all said and done, at the end of the day, we must remind ourselves of what he said to Job. Where were you? Where were you? God said, let there be light. God said, it was good. He separated the light from the darkness. There was evening, there was morning, one day. Amen? Amen. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention some key passages that relate directly to our text this morning and specifically about the true source of light, namely, the one through whom all things came into being the one whom John himself said in his gospel, uh, agreeing fully with Moses, 
said, was in the beginning with God, who was God. Guess what he is called? That's right, the word of God, the light of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, how many things? All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. The beginning, all things, the word, the light, overcoming darkness. Is this John 1 or Genesis 1? My my brothers and sisters, may we never forget in these texts the mediating work of the second person of the eternal triune God, the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to remember this. The word is Christ, okay? That this light is Christ. A man needs this light to sustain his life here on this earth. Without it, we'd be doomed. And man needs this light for eternal life thereafter. Without him, we would be doomed. Remember that as you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Go ahead. You've got to see it for your own eyes. Don't take my word for it. Don't believe everything we put up on the screen, by the way. We try to do our best, but you've got to verify it. Hold us accountable. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 6. All right. Therefore, Paul says, Since we have this ministry, he's talking about the ministry of gospel proclamation. He referenced clear back in chapter 2 where he said, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. Oh, I wish I would have seen that last week. Uh, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's talking here about straight up, undarkened, unadulterated gospel proclamation to every man. But then he gets into some separation, okay? Divine distinctions. Again, not all men will hear or see or come to the light. And God has always made separations. He's always made divisions. The light from the day, the water from the earth, the expanse from the heavens, the holy place from the holiest place, the Israelites from the pagan nations, believers from unbelievers. Oh, yeah. Look at it there in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the mind of the unbelieving 
the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a distinction in the peoples, in human beings. There are those who are blind, which also means there are those who what? See. That's right. And what do we need to see in such a dark and evil world system? That's right. Somebody said light. A little. Was that you, Tabitha? Yeah. Oh, get up here with me. No, it's <laughs> Not a girl. That's right. We need light. The light of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The light of the world. Well, how does this happen? How do we go from being blinded by the darkness of sin, groping around in this dark and decaying evil world system to seeing clearly? The answer is in verses 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. I guess Paul was a lordship guy. And ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God who said, let light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul is quoting Genesis 1-3 and referencing the sovereign act of God, the Father speaking light into creation of the heavens and the earth through the word who is Christ, separating the light from the darkness. The light who is Christ. And he's saying here the same sovereign work must be and will be accomplished in the hearts of those whom he has called to himself by means of pure, unadulterated gospel proclamation. That's what this is all about. The Holy Spirit activated recreation and regeneration of our darkened and totally depraved hearts come through a faithful proclamation of the gospel of salvation and reconciliation to a holy God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel, which says the eternal Son of God came into the world. He came into this world that was created through him, which was originally good, but was darkened by sin and death, which entered into the world by one man's disobedience. He came into this dark and depraved and decaying, sin-cursed earth, and he walked among us as light. But he told Nicodemus that men love the darkness rather than the light. Their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. He who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. Who is the one who practices truth? Jesus says the one who believes in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The one who believes in the virgin birth. The perfect, sinless, spotless life, the death, burial, and triumphant, sin-conquering, death-conquering resurrection of Christ. The sacrificial lamb of God who is, is then the only one, the only one who has the power to grant life, life, eternal life to all who would but turn from their darkness of sin 
come to the light by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ who ascended back up to the right hand of the Father on high from where he would send his spirit to accomplish this work in us. Overcoming the darkness in our wicked, desperately sick, depraved, and darkened hearts. Our Satan-blinded hearts shining in our hearts is what he does. Giving us the ability to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Have you seen the light, my brothers and sisters? Have you seen the light? Have your eyes been opened to the wondrous work that he has done for sinners, accomplished for sinners? Have your hearts been illuminated to the truths of the power of God, not only in creation, but in salvation? Has the darkness of your heart been overcome by the light of the gospel of his son? Has he, by his sovereign word, spared you from the darkness of hell? An eternity apart from him. And has he, by his sovereign grace, made you to be holy and pure? Through the shed blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, granting you eternal life, life with him in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. If you're not absolutely sure of this, I would implore you not to get up out of that seat until you're sure. Don't leave this place until you are absolutely sure. If you're listening to this online or watching it, driving around, hopefully you're not watching and driving at the same time. If you are, hit pause and pull over. I would implore you to be absolutely certain before you get up out of that seat that the light of the gospel of grace has shone in your dark heart by the sovereign grace of the Lord alone. Are you saved? Are you one of his? Do you belong to him? It's the most important thing in the whole world. You have to know that. Consider your end. Consider your physical death. That moment when you take your final breath on this earth. Where will you be? It could come at any moment. You have no control over the next breath that comes into your lung. It was given to you from, from above as a gift. Where are you going to be when, when you stop breathing? I'll tell you this. Only those who come to the Father through Christ will see the glorious light of the Father in heaven. Which leads me to one final brief exhortation to you this morning. Last point in your outline. Over the next few weeks and months, we're going to see some amazing things together. Some amazing things. We'll hear of majestic heavens. We'll hear of the vast seas, towering mountains, rolling hills, even a perfect garden with beautiful trees and luscious fruit. The beauty, the absolute beauty, perfection of the creation before the fall. And we'll even consider the beauty of the earth that by his grace we still get to see. Even after the curse, we still get to see this beautiful snow landing on the mountain. Here's my charge to you. As beautiful and as wonderful as this creation is, and it is both of those things, it's beautiful and wonderful, but as beautiful as it is, I would caution you to not love it. Do not love this world. 
do not love this creation, this world, or the things of this world more than you love the one who created it. Okay? This world, along with the worlds, the heavens and the suns and the moons, will one day all be gone. Peter's clear. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. So amazing as this world is, the earth will be found out, by the way. As amazing as this world is, this creation, we must not love it more than we love the eternal one who created it. Okay? Instead, we are to long for that next world, a new earth, a new in the new heavens. Well, what's so special about that? Well, John tells us that on this new earth is a new city. And this city has walls and structures made up of magnificent gems, clear stones of all colors, all radiating and reflecting, refracting the, the light of the glory of God. Even the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. John says, I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. Its lamp is the Lamb. Now that's a world worth looking forward to, amen? I can look forward to that world. John tells us how this will come to be, and in doing so, he gives us a glimpse of what makes heaven heaven. He says, and I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, made as ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. That'll be nice, right? There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Eternal life with God himself, that's a life worth looking forward to. Amen? Amen. Well, it's a world and a life which only the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has to look forward to. So I ask again, are you one of those? Are you one of those? If you're not absolutely sure, I would invite you, come to the light today. Father bids you come to him today on the authority of his everlasting word. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give him the glory for all of eternity for the great things he hath done. Amen. Amen. Let's pray now. We'll have Noel come up and the music team to lead us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word and your gospel. We thank you for the light, uh, both the physical light and the light of the gospel that now shines in our heart. We're so grateful for all that you've done. And we love you. We love your gospel and we love your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.